Good morning. Uh, Ezra chapter 5. If you've ever seen a young child play with a train set, then you can get a sense of what we see in our passage today. If you've seen a child, young child play with a train set, you know how it goes down. You get the, the train all put together, the track all put together, you get all of the scenery set in place, and then the train gets nicely fitted on the track, and there it goes, like, whirring around the, the track, and everything's great. And uh, everything will carry along just fine until the kid does something to derail the train. And you come back to find the train stalled out, still whirring in place, but off the rails, off the track. Or in our house, you come back and I, uh, to find one of your children, I won't say who, but you, you find one of your children who has managed to get her hair tangled in the things, and so it's just gone around and around, so I won't name which of my children, but... Um, the, and so, but either way, the train is now off the rails a bit and needs to get put on, back on track. This is what we see in Ezra 5 and 6 today. Two weeks ago, we left off at the end of chapter 4. There we saw the, that though the Jewish community had got off to a good start as they came back from the exile, their work of rebuilding the temple came to a grinding halt when it came off the rails as the community is opposed by their neighbors. And though the Jews should have responded to this opposition by persevering in the work that God called them to, instead for 17 years, 17 years, the work ceases. Today in chapter 5 and 6, we see God graciously intervene to get the work back on track. I read now to you from Ezra 4.24 so that we can pick up the story and then we will journey on from there. Here's where we pick it up. Ezra 4.24. Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you for your word. Speak to us now through your word. May your spirit give us understanding, conviction, comfort, encouragement. And may your spirit give us resolve to apply all that we hear from your word today. Use your word now, God, to encourage us to build us up individually and corporately to the kind of people that will reflect your glory to those around us. So, Father, we ask that you do that work now. Amen. This morning, I want to proceed by walking through the passage to observe its structure and then understand the story. Then we'll step back to view the passage as a whole and see how it applies to us before finally we close rejoicing in God's grace. So first we see the structure of the text. And I don't know how you feel when you come across a good chiastic structure in the Bible, but I know that I feel about as giddy as a child on Christmas. So... Um, what is a chiastic structure? I'm glad that you asked. So uh, a chiasm is this literary structure used often in the Bible where the author writes with this stair-step 
structure, ascending to a point, and then dis- descending down in a corresponding way, but in reverse order. So it's a pattern that you can see, maybe referred to in the study Bible as an ABBA pattern. Uh, I've got it on the screen so that you can get a visual of it. And again, like last time I preached, you don't feel the need to copy all this down. It's on Church Center. You see me afterwards if you really need the notes. Um, Now, I draw our attention to this this morning, not just because of like my nerdy, inordinate fascination with chiastic structure in the Bible, though I'll own that. Um, I, I draw this not only to point to the just literary beauty of the scriptures, like the Bible is put together in a way that's actually just beautiful, and we should delight in that, but ultimately, I draw our attention to it because recognizing the author-intended structure then helps us see the author-intended meaning. And since we believe that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author behind the author of Scripture, then we should take all the help he gives us in understanding what's he, what he's saying through the Word. Because this structure is not just a flowery adornment, but it has a function drawing our attention to see the main point there at the height of the structure. And then it also has a, perf- a function by the way that each other step corresponds that'll help us see the corresponding points. So Ezra 5, 1 through 6, 18 is arranged in this kind of a structure. So watch that as we walk through the story and we see how it plays out. Picking up in chapter 5, verse 1, we see the prophet's support restarts the temple building. As we pick up the story, we've already heard where we are. They've ceased working for 17 years. God has called his people to the task of rebuilding the temple, but it's stalled out. And as we take the first step of our story, we see God graciously intervening by sending his word to his people in order to accomplish his work. Ezra 5.1. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. As we saw two weeks ago, here we can go to the words of Haggai and we can see the stinging rebuke that comes from the Lord to his people through his prophet. But as much as that rebuke is stinging, it's nonetheless still a wonderfully gracious intervention from the Father that he would send his word in order to get his people back on track. So while it may sting, it's still a wonderful grace. Haggai 1-2 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it, a, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And then again in verse 7, Haggai would say, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He's repeating, consider your ways. Look at your life. Look what you're doing. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, 
because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. But what's critical to see in Haggai's word to this people is just how thoroughly the Lord is rebuking their misplaced priorities. He's not just upset that they're not accomplishing the work that he's calling them to. He's not just upset about a building. It goes much deeper than that because the temple is the place where his special presence is to dwell, and it's the place where atonement sacrifices are to be made. So God's word through the prophet Haggai cuts to the core of the problem, essentially asking, do you not want my presence? Do you not need atonement for your sin? Do you even care about me at all? Or do you just want the gifts without the giver? Having been graciously saved and brought back home, do you now care nothing about my presence? Church, I think we do well to pause and ponder that same point. Would it be, would it be enough for you if the Lord would pour out his blessing on you Answer your every prayer, smooth out every trial and stress in your life. Would it be enough if you get all of that and not have the very presence of God Himself? Or can you say, along with Asaph in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do we just want his gifts or do we want God himself? Haggai comes with this word from God, and then at this point in Haggai 1.12, and we also see in Ezra 5.2 in our text this morning, both record the repentance from the Jewish community. So from Ezra, we see, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Here's what's equally critical to see. God's word comes through the prophets with a stinging rebuke in order to call the people back. But once the people turn back, God's word then continues through the prophets in order to bring comfort and encouragement. The middle part of Haggai, if you would read it, go, resounds with the repeated promise from God, I am with you. Haggai chapter 2, 4 and 5. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. Be strong, be strong, be strong. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. So we see how the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. God graciously sends his word to bring the conviction, but he also brings his word to bring the comfort and the encouragement. From there, we take our next step up. 
opposition had stopped the work. And just as the work gets going again, once again, opposition arises. At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozanai and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? And note this, But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So this time as opposition arises, they press on in the work seeking to build and finish, build and finish, which is a phrase that re- occurs repeatedly throughout these two chapters. They don't stop, they, they press on. And now I'll take one more step up in the story as Tatanai, the governor, then writes a letter to Darius the king seeking to stop the work. And as throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, the author includes for us a copy of the letter that we can see. Picking up from the end of verse 7, To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. The work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for, for your information, that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. I'll pause here. Note in their reply their self-effacing, God-glorifying testimony to the outsiders. This is the Jews' reply to Tatanai. So we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And then the Jews go on, relaying, that's how we got the temple vessels. He, he released the temple vessels to us. Cyrus gave them back to us. And since then, they say the project has been in building and is not yet finished. And so Tatanai concludes his letter with this request of Darius the king. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon and see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Which brings us to the climactic turning point of the story. It brings us to the top of the steps. And being on this point in the structure, this is the decisive section, and the, the structure directs all of our attention to see this here. Remember in chapter 4, it was opposition that had previously stalled out the work. And remember also in chapter 4, immediately preceding this, the author gave us that flash forward in the story letter 
where the opposition entreated King Artaxerxes to search the archives and make the work stop. And we saw then what happened. And so as we're reading through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah from a literary standpoint, we see this letter go out to a king and we start to say, I've seen this story before. Like this didn't turn out well last time when this, this other letter got sent. This doesn't look good. What's going to happen Things just got back on track. Will it not now stall out again? And for that answer, we read this critical section in Ezra 6, 1 through 5. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which it, this was written, a record in the first year of Cyrus the king, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. So, unlike the half-hearted research that we see done by Artaxerxes in chapter 4, what we see here is a thorough and just search. Tatanai writes in his letter, search the city of Babylon and see if you can find any record of this. And Darius's response is to go further. He searches the whole province of Babylonia, which works out well because the actual records are found in Ecbatana, the summer house of the Persian kings. Moreover, Tatanai has drawn attention in his letters and they're building this with huge stones and timber as a way of saying, like, this is no small project. You need to watch out for what they have going on over here. Something big is going on. And here in this record of Cyrus, Darius finds the exonerating evidence. Cyrus told them to build it with big stones and timber, just like it had been built before. And last, yes, the vessels were to, were to be returned. In short, the story checks out. But even more than that, Darius also learns from this search that the cost was to be paid from the royal treasury. And we know from the Ezra chapter 1 that this decree from Cyrus was because of the Lord's hand. And now, in hindsight, we see even more how great God's provision was. In one one, we read, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And that's a wonderful provision from God that it would be written down because when the Jews, by their own sinfulness, stall out the project and it doesn't resume for two administrations later, the fact that it's written down and is God's provision to get the project back on track. And so we say, praise God, someone kept the receipt, and praise God for good record-keeping, because through it, God was providing for his people before there was ever even a problem. And now, 
having seen this decisive section in Ezra 5 and 6, we turn and we descend back down the stairs, noting how each step corresponds to the step up in reverse order. So first we see the letter back. The letter out had said, can you stop the work? The letter back says, no, continue the work. Darius' instruction to the opposition, now therefore, Tat and I, keep away Let the work of this house of God alone, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the house on its site. Then second, we see Darius' provision for the project. And note here that Darius' instructions evidence, at minimum, significant detailed knowledge of what the Jews need But more likely, it evidences that as this letter goes out, Darius has some other Jews sovereignly put in place near to him for just such a time as this. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Then we go on. Third, we see Darius give harrowing ramifications if his orders are not followed. And again, either Darius's knowledge of Jewish theology is just right on point, or he has other Jews in his ear there in Babylon telling him that God has caused his name to dwell in the temple. Darius says this, Also I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Darius says, if you stand in the way of this house being built, then you will be put to death with your own house. And Darius closes with the phrase, let it be done with all diligence a phrase that we see repeated in the next verse. So again, a letter goes out, stop the work. But instead, by God's providence, a letter comes back, no, you better not stop that work. Let it be, let it continue on. Let it continue on with all diligence. And also, you're going to pick up the tab for it. Next, as we take another step back down the stairs, we see the resolution of the opposition. In the corresponding section from chapter 5, we saw how the opposition arose. Now we see the resolution to that. The opposition is made to assist in the project. Then according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shether Bozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. Barring words from Joseph, we see that what they intended for evil, God has now used for good. 
Not only they to keep away or face dire consequences, they have to pay for the whole thing. And they do just that with all diligence. Last, in our final step down, we see the author turn back to highlight again that all of this comes about because the work of God's word given through the prophets is bringing this work to completion. Verse 14, and the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated this dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as is written in the book of Moses. Through God's gracious stirring, through the prophets, the project that was once off the rails has been put back on track and then ultimately brought to completion. A project that had gone untouched for 17 years is now completed in just under four years. And now God's people celebrate the dedication with joy. And they bring their thank offerings and their sin offerings. And the numbers are meager compared to the 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep that were offered at Solomon's first temple dedication. But there's still great reason for joy and celebration because God has brought a remnant home. God has restored the temple. And now through the through this work, covenant worship goes on at a restored temple with the worship given by Moses, or the, the, the covenant given by Moses, and then the order of worship given by David. And so though they've endured God's discipline in the exile, God's purposes for Israel as a whole are back on track. And this is what we see. God did it all. God set the project in motion through Cyrus. God sent prophets here in 5.1 to get the project restarted. In 5.5, the eye of their God was on them, protecting them from opposition. It was God's providence that they found favor in Darius, and it was God's providence that the records were found in Ekbatana. And so... As in 6.14, they finished their building by decree of the God of Israel. Through many human instruments, some believing and some not, through many ups and downs, through fits and starts, at the end of the day, God superintends over everything, sovereignly accomplishing his purposes in the world. Church, here's what we need to take from this today. God promised this people through the prophet Haggai, I am with you. 
And God is still with us, his people, to accomplish his purposes. It's repeated all throughout the New Testament. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. John 20, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's his presence in us, indwelling us. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Each of these promises are given in the context of his mission, and in all of them he promises to be with us. The Lord is with his people to accomplish his purposes. He's with you accomplishing his purposes in you individually. He's with you working in your family. He's accomplishing his purpose, whatever that may be, through this local church. And he's likewise with his global people accomplishing his purposes all around the world in his one global church. The Lord is with us, with his people. And we can see the Lord, from our text, we see that the Lord is with us through his word. To the people of Ezra, chapter 5 and 6, he sent his word through prophets. Today he speaks to his people by the scriptures. And look, I know that I'm a broken record on this. I know I'm a broken record calling us to his word. And I make no apology for that. I'm not going to stop calling us to just be a people of the book, to just be a people that cherish and delight in his word. And if I ever do, send me back to selling pool repairs. Also, just a spoiler, next week, Ezra 7, all about his word. That's what we're going to be talking about all about next week. We must be a people deeply, deeply devoted to his word. By it, we know God. By it, we receive his correction, even if at times it's a stinging rebuke. And still by it, we receive his comfort and encouragement. His word is the fuel for our mission. And so if we're going to press on in God-glorifying mission to be a set-apart people proclaiming his excellencies in the world around us, then we must be devoted students of his word. Through the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures, God has graciously revealed himself to us. And through thousands of years, thousands of years, he has meticulously preserved the scriptures for us so that we could hold them in our hand this morning. Men have even given their 
very lives to hand his word down to us and to, that our, the word would be translated to us in our own language. And in every generation, God raises up new translations so that the word would be given to us in our vernacular, in our, word, in our language. So the Bible that you hold in your hands is no small grace. And so once again, I just call us, take it up and read. Study. Apply your mind to the hard work. It's okay if it's hard. Apply your mind to the hard work of knowing God through his word. If he's spoken through a chiastic structure, then learn to see it that you can see God's message. If he's spoken through parallelism and synecdoches and independent clauses and those things are going to help us understand God's word, then learn them so that you might better understand his word and thereby know your God more. Push yourself, engage your mind, apply yourself to know him through his word. Invest the time. Invest money in good helps. If you need help on that, you can see me or the other elders. We can help you with good resources. Here's one of the things that convicted me this week as I thought about this. Will Christian, know that this has cut me first, even though I'm wording it third person. But we walk with Christ in possession of his word for 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, 50 years, and not know what God's word has to say to us from Haggai, from Zechariah, from 3 John. Will such a precious, costly gift just go unopened? Christian, devote yourself to receive his grace as you study his word. And kids, students, college students, especially hear me. You will never again in your life have as much free time plus energy plus sharpness of mind as you have right now. Use it wisely to store up deep wells of God's word. And don't think to yourself, I can't understand it, okay? You guys are learning chemistry and Latin declensions and trigonometry. You have all the brain power you need to understand God's word if you would put down the screens and pick up his word. Invest now in a strong foundation. Invest now in the habits that will serve you well all the rest of your life. The Lord is with us through his word. Second, we see the Lord is with us overcoming opposition. We've said before, the Christian has three enemies. Our own sin, the world, and the evil one. In our passage today, the decisive moment is at that top end of the steps, and then as we descend down the backside of the passage in victory, that decisive moment is applied on every step of the way. 
And for us, church, in a way analogous to that, our decisive victory over our enemies has already been won. Jesus crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father means that Jesus has already defeated the enemies of our flesh, the world, and the devil. He's already won the decisive battle, and now we just descend down in victory as he resolves it all. This is what Ephesians 1, 19 through 21 says. May you know the greatness of the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Because of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus now reigns over all, having already overcome our opposition. So your sin has already been dealt with. Its penalty has been paid, and if you're in Christ, you have full forgiveness. There's no, there, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus But more than that, you've been redeemed, presently freed from sin's power in your life. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin." Jesus has already overcome sin in our life. The world, everything that makes up this fallen creation, living in rebellion to God, Jesus has already overcome that. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Read again the book of Revelation Read it big picture, okay? Put away your charts and just catch the sense of it. Jesus wins. And because Jesus wins, therefore his people win. Though now in this life the church will experience hardship and the church will be opposed for righteousness' sake, one day the church militant will become the church victorious when the kingdom of this world is finally and fully put down and the kingdom of Christ will reign forever. And so Jesus has already overcome the world. So we live now not to garner favor with a world that's passing away, but we live now with the sure hope that Jesus has overcome the world, and we run out the clock while proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. Third, the evil one. The evil one has already been defeated. Hebrews 2, 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus' death and resurrection has defeated the devil. Further, Jesus' victory on the cross has, I believe, 
already restrained the evil one's ability to deceive the nations. Already the evil one is powerless to stop the forward march of Christ's church. He may get in the way at times. He may still be the source of much evil in the world, but he's already on a leash when it comes to Christ's church, so much so that James can promise us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But finally, church, don't mishear me. I don't mean for a second I don't mean for a second to minimize the very real trials, the very real pain, the very real suffering, the very real battles that we face now in this life. Just inevitably, some of you are going through the ringer even now. And I'm not saying that those difficulties are not heavy, but I am saying that on balance, his victory is heavier still than that. We know that though the decisive battle has already, been, has already won the war, even now battles in the church age can be fierce. But the Christian has the sure hope that Christ is reigning even now. And there's not a hair that falls from your head that is outside his control. And the Christian can have the sure hope that the flesh, the world, and the evil one have already been defeated and one day will be finally put down. So if that's you this morning, brother, sister, I just say this. Hold on just a little while longer. We're almost home. Cling to Christ and rest in his victory and cling to the church that we may help you cling to Christ. The Lord is with us overcoming opposition. Third, the Lord is with us delivering the victory. Over all things, God is sovereignly delivering the victory. And so we trust not in our own strength, but in his strength to accomplish his work. In Ezra, he was sovereignly working behind Cyrus's decree, sovereignly working to send his word to get the people back on track, sovereignly worked through his people. He moved on their hearts so that they would arise and build. He granted them repentance. And then he sovereignly orchestrated goodwill with King Darius. He accomplished all that he purposed. And for us today, we need to cultivate a God-sized confidence that he will continue to accomplish all of his purposes, even while he accomplishes those purposes in, through us. We need to have that kind of confidence that God will do his work. What he's called us to, he will empower us for. And so, again, we don't undertake God's work in our strength. We undertake his work in his strength. But we must heed the call of his word, like we see here in Ezra 5 and 6. We must heed the call of his word and respond in obedience. Just wonder, I wonder how many times he burdens our heart for some way of 
building up his church, or he burdens us for non-believers in our life, and we just look within and feel so inadequate that we just stop working. Instead, we should be looking to him, trusting him to accomplish his purposes, and we should be looking around, seeing a church family here that stands ready to walk side by side in God-glorifying mission to the world. When God calls us to something by his word, when the Spirit of God burdens, burdens our hearts for his purposes. It could just be so easy to look around and see all the hurdles, all the ways I'm not adequate to the task. But sometimes we just need to plod on and trust him to accomplish his purposes. I dare say so many times we don't see his provision because we just sit back paralyzed, never undertaking the work paralyzed by the potential problems that might come instead of just trusting him that he will provide when we get those. He may have already taken care of that before. You don't even know unless we get after it. The church member that you're burdened to come alongside but you just don't see how. Your friend that you think would never entertain a gospel conversation. Some God-glorifying gospel dream that he's given you to minister to our community. Or even some wild burden for a faraway people. If he's called you to it, then his strength will accomplish his purpose through you. Don't shrink back looking at your own inadequacy. Instead, arise and build as you look to his strength and you look to the corporate strength of his people here together. And church, for those of you, so many of us, that are already busy with your hand at the plow then press on trusting him to see his work through. You be faithful and you let him worry about making his work fruitful. The Lord is with his people delivering the victory. Last, Ezra chapter 6 closes. It closes out the first act of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah as the temple is now rebuilt. Next week, as we pick up chapter 7, it goes into the second act. But before moving on, chapter 6 closes with a scene of God's people joyously worshiping him in response to all that he has accomplished among them. Look to Ezra 6.19 with me. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, 
so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Now with a rebuilt temple, the Jewish community is able to worship fully, and they do. Coming together to joyously celebrate God's grace poured out on them. And as they come to celebrate the Passover, they come to remember that they are unable to stand before God's holiness on their own and atone for their own sin. They're desperate for an atonement that comes outside of them, but they come now rejoicing because God has, pri- God has provided the blood of the lamb. That's what they're celebrating at the Passover. And then they come celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread, rejoicing in God's ongoing provision and trusting that he's going to continue to provide for his people. But note that wonderful open invitation of grace in verse 21. Only those who are God's set-apart people should come to celebrate the Passover, but there remains an open invitation to anyone who would turn from their sin, trust in his grace, and turn in worship to the Lord. And as we read this, we should be reminded once more that we no longer look back to celebrate God's grace in the Exodus. For us, the church today, we don't look back and celebrate the Passover the same way way. Even as we see in Ezra, the exodus from exile where once more, once more God has gathered his people back to himself. Instead, we, the church, now look back celebrating Jesus who accomplished the greater exodus and the greater Passover by being the lamb that shed his blood once for all to gather God's people. The exodus They celebrate the Passover as God saves his people out of Egypt. Now in Ezra and Nehemiah, he saved his people from from exile and brought them back and gathered them back together. But in Christ, the better, perfect, once-for-all sacrifice, he has gathered us to himself, bringing us together from the world. And so, in Matthew 26, Jesus transforms the Passover to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, where we look back and remember his blood poured out on the cross to atone for our sin, and we celebrate his ongoing provision for his people. If you're here with us today, though, and have never turned to Christ in faith and repentance... First of all, as we say every week, we're glad you're here. But if you're here today and you've never turned to Christ in faith and repentance, you're outside of Christ today, then you're outside of God's family. And you need to know, you need to know that you'll never come before God on your own scorecard. Your good works cannot even pay the interest on your sin debt. You need forgiveness that comes from outside of you and not something that you can muster up from within. You need the righteousness of Christ. But praise God and don't miss your opportunity 
Though you stand outside of his people right now, today, even now, you can enter into God's global family by trusting in the blood of Christ to cover your sin and turning to him in repentance. No matter how far off the rails your life is now, only the Lord himself can get your life back on track. And if that's you today, and God is stirring in you, the Spirit of God is stirring in you, calling you to surrender your life to Christ, then we'd love to talk to you more. Talk to a friend that brought you, talk to a neighbor sitting beside you, or talk to any of us that have been up front this morning. But for the rest of us who have already come to Christ, take heart and press on in all that he is calling us to be. The Lord is with us. The Lord is with his people. The Lord is with us through his word, with us to overcome opposition, and he's with us delivering the victory. So in response, we turn in just a moment to joyously celebrate his grace by celebrating the blood of the lamb poured out for us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do in us your work. Father, I pray that your spirit would cause us to go from here considering whatever message you have for each of us here today. It's a conviction, then let us go. Let us go from here considering what kind of repentance is needed. If it's comfort, Lord, then let us go from here dwelling on your word and receiving comfort and grace from your word. And if it's encouragement, let us go from here dwelling on that. Father, do pray that you would continue to work here in our body, that you would continue to make us a kind of people that reflect your glory well to the world around us. So, Father, stir up in us a greater affection for your word, a greater love for your word, that we can come to your word not as just duty, Lord, but we come to it in delight. Stir up in us that kind of love for your word. Father, stir up in us a confidence not in ourselves, but a confidence in you that we can undertake great God-glorifying mission because we have confidence that you will do the work. Stir up that kind of confidence in us, Father, that kind of faith that would lead to boldness. And Father, in, in it all, stir up in us just this knowledge, this looking forward knowledge that you are going to deliver the victory. Help us, that, help us be resolved in all of our battles and all of our battles with sin and all of our battles with suffering, all of our battles with the world. Lord, help us to take hope in the fact that you are working, you are on the throne, and you will deliver the victory. Do that work in us now, Father. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.